0: faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com okay what i'm going to do today is since it's focused on okay what did you do uh what did you produce what i produced is a book It'll be coming out from Emmaus uh, Press, uh, and, uh, it, which is a Catholic press, uh, if you're unaware of that. And uh, as I say, it will be coming out this spring. Now, the title will be something like Catholic Ecology, but I don't know for sure what it's going to be. We've narrowed it down either to Catholic Ecology or something else. Um, so what we're trying to do then is, is I'm going to use that as the working title for an intro into exactly what, was, uh, what I did and then we will take questions, and I will certainly get out of here at 10 of, so you can run off to Mass. Okay, so the question for this, uh, this uh, presentation is, is there such a thing as a Catholic ecology? Yes, there is, with a small c. That is, the original etymological meaning of Catholic, from Catholicus in Greek, is universal. That is, as entirely comprehensive on this understanding, Catholic ecology is defined by a concern for all of nature, including human nature, and hence what we may call a moral ecology. Now, I, didn't, I, I wish I had made up that term, but it's actually used by popes, moral ecology, and not just by Saint Fr- uh, Pope Francis. Don't want to canonize him too early. What is obviously significant here uh, in this understanding of uh, Catholic ecology with a small c is an ex- expanding our understanding of ecology from its current focus on nature out there, trees, rivers, animals, birds, air, uh, e- uh, distinct ecosystems, and so on, to include what has been an obvious part of nature, or should have been an obvious part of nature, which for some reason has been mysteriously left out of the environmental movement, and that's human nature, and hence human morality, or I can say uh, to Catholics, the natural law. So I'm trying to include the natural law in our understanding of ecology. So there is such a thing as Catholic ecology with a small c. That's the focus of the book, and that's the focus of this presentation, therefore. But there's also Catholic ecology with a big c. The Catholic Church already accepts this expanded understanding of ecology, which includes both nature and human nature. The doctrine of creation, defining nature, defining creation as good and human nature as part of that creation as very good, has been part of the Catholic understanding from the very beginning. That is, it has its roots in the Old Testament, and of course all our moral reasoning is based on the natural law, that is, on creation, on human nature. So in regard to the Old Testament, and I'm not going to quote a uh, whole lot of things in the Old Testament, uh, the psalmist You probably didn't know this. Generally speaking, if you read back over it, you find out that they are indeed tree huggers. Uh, And they are mountain huggers, and insofar as possible, they are stream huggers. And why? Because all creation sings the glory of the Creator, and so the psalmists regularly sing the glory of creation. You see that there. There is a very simple rule, however, in the Israelite ecology. You can hug the cedars of Lebanon, just don't carve them into gods. Pretty simple. But of course, the New Testament affirms the glories of creation of nature even more radically since it is revealed that God himself, God the Son, became incarnate in nature, uniting himself with human nature, and it was the Son through whom all things were made, both nature and human nature. So we have a theological reason why we want to be concerned with nature, that is, with the environment. Finally, the church itself has said a lot about the intrinsic goodness of creation, and there's a rich history of theological reflection including reflections by Pope, and it isn't just by Pope uh, Francis, by the way, and it isn't just by St. Francis, but those are the obvious two that come up, especially since uh, uh, the Laudato Si's, uh, Pope Francis' encyclical came out. That threw our concern on uh, environmental issues uh, and was the beginning of this book, but not the end of it. The book is not focused on Laudato Si'. Because the book is focused on Catholic ecology with a small c. That is, I'm trying to make headway among people who don't care if the Catholic Church exists and would prefer that it was extinguished. Uh, So I'm trying to make a common argument appealing to nature, uh, what we can know by science, uh, what we can know by philosophy. But the Catholic with a big C is implicit. I let it rise and fall, but I don't emphasize it because again I'm trying to make a common approach argument to make some headway in this. Okay, uh, the book uh, this is a pretty good over generalization but there's there's a there's a very simple four-step argument to the book. The first step. Just as there is an order of nature which is good, wonderful and beautiful that we should both respect and protect so also, there is an order of human nature which is good, wonderful, and beautiful, and we should respect and protect that too. The second step, when we violate the order of nature in some way, we generally call that pollution, meaning by this that we have in some way by our actions damaged nature, whether it is the air the water or some particular species or uh, uh, an ecosystem. If human nature is indeed, as its name suggests, part of nature, then we should be able to call violations of the order of human nature moral pollution. And for the very same reason, meaning by moral pollution, that we have in some way uh, by our actions damaged human nature, whether it is our body, our sexual nature, or some other aspect of our moral nature, or our capacity to freely choose what is good. The final step in the argument, therefore, again, this is made to the public at large, therefore our understanding of ecology, a truly Catholic ecology with a small c, must be expanded to include respect for and protection of both nature and human nature, and so Catholic ecology includes both environmental ecology and moral ecology and the connections between them. So as such, it's a very simple argument. So We are by nature moral beings, beings that have to know and choose well in order to act well in regard to ourselves and the natural environment. We are free to choose well or badly in regard to human nature and nature, therefore both kinds of pollution are immoral. It is immoral to dump destructive chemicals like meth into our bodies and to destroy our sexual nature with pornography. And it is immoral to dump destructive chemicals into the air or destroy ecosystems for our trivial pleasures. In other words, what you're doing is making a parallel. So why are you making this kind of parallel? Well, of course, I believe it's true, but, and it seems to me obvious uh, that it would be true. How can you believe that you should protect nature and not human nature? How can you believe that nature has an intrinsic order you shouldn't violate, but not believe that human nature has intrinsic order that you shouldn't violate? Uh, there is a problem with getting this out there and understood. And this, by the way, does form the foundation of uh, Pope uh, Francis's Laudato Si. I think he even uses the term in there, moral ecology. Okay, there's an obstacle facing the acceptance of Catholic ecology with a small c, and that is the left versus the right, liberal versus conservative back-and-forth fight. And so I begin the book, and we're going to begin this, with the kinds of uh, caricatures. I would say character, characterizations, but they might be somewhat caricatures. Uh, these characterizations or caricatures have their dangers when we're talking about the left and the right. Certainly we got through some with the election. But they are often instructive over generalizations that help us see the problem. They give us a clue to the common prejudices and dearly held opinions, if even by exaggeration. That is, in order to make the book have a a, a significant effect, you have to get past these obstacles. You can write all kinds of wonderful things, and nobody will read them. So if they don't read them, it's not going to have an effect. So you have to take account of the obstacles that you're dealing with in the particular society. That's why I'm dealing with these generalizations about the left and the right. So I'm going to indulge in some really, uh, I would think, familiar characterizations, and they do border on caricatures. So I apologize for that in the Socratic sense. In regard to the environment, The left sees those on the right as self-righteous, woman-hating, Bible-thumping, voracious consumer capitalists ripping up millions of trees and throwing down endless miles of pavement so they can tank around from mall to mall in their guzzling SUVs, spewing fast food trash out their tinted electric windows while they sing God Bless America and blithely plowing over innocent animals who haplessly wander onto their asphalt paths. Okay, that's... The right sees the left as atheistic, human-hating, earth-worshipping socialists who eat funny food, drive politically correct toy cars, guzzle lattes, and spend their time saving whales and nearly invisible and obscure creek creatures while they heartily support abortion, euthanasia, and even the collective extermination of the human species for the sake of saving the natural environment accepting, of course, the elimination of those who are non-white, gay, or transgender, or some newly discovered sexual derivation. There you go. Caricature. You can tell where you are in regard to your own view of things by which caricature you find amusing and accurate and which one you find offensive. For the record, I find them both amusing, and I find them both offensive, but also they're all too accurate. Now, to take a little bit of the edge off the caricature, let's still working with it, try to get some clarity on it. And again, you'll you'll realize these positions. The left is typically deeply concerned about the natural environment, but often considers human nature to be an invasive, if not evil, presence in the otherwise paradisal garden of nature. The right is typically deeply concerned about human nature, about human morality, but is either indifferent to or hostile to concern the natural environment. So while the left is obsessed with the pollution of the natural environment, the right is obsessed with the pollution of the moral environment. The result is that each side refuses to see the other side's legitimate claims to truth because the other side seems to be tied inextricably to evident error. That keeps them both from embracing a truly Catholic ecology. So the left looks at the right and thinks, all those who are so hyped up about abortion and homosexuality are also rapidly destroying not just the beauty of our natural environment, but poisoning the water and the land as well. Therefore, their concern about morality must be essentially corrupt too. The right looks at the left and thinks, all those who are so hyped up about environmentalism are also rapidly pro-abortion and pro-gay marriage. Therefore, concern about the natural environment must be essentially corrupt too. Notice the dynamic. Many on the left tend to believe, even though they proclaim the inviolable integrity of nature, that there are no intrinsic, inviolable, natural, moral limits defining the integrity of human nature. So that moral progress for the left often means being able to do whatever we want to human nature, as in, for example, human sexuality or the manipulation of human genetics, as long as we take care of the natural environment. Okay, so you can do all those things as long as you recycle. And own a Subaru, which I do own a Subaru, by the way. Many on the right, even though they proclaim the inviolable moral integrity of human nature, tend to believe that there are no intrinsic and limits to our use of nature, of the environment. So that progress means being able to do whatever we want with nature as long as we were personally moral. You're starting to see how they are at loggerheads. Hence the cultural impasse, which uh, a condition which Pope Francis calls our constant schizophrenia of the left and right. And the goal of the book, A Catholic Ecology, is to clear up the vision of both sides so we can bring ourselves and our modern society out of this back and forth but getting nowhere stalemate. Now, obviously I must mention that this schizophrenia is found within the Catholic Church as well, with liberal Catholics leaning to the left and Orthodox Catholics leaning to the right. So my assumption is that there's going to, we're going to find Orthodox Christians in the right, and so I'm generally going to appeal to them through Christianity when I talk about the right or being conservative. But there's a whole lot of folks that I'm not dealing with. I can't deal with everyone in this. So there's, you'll see an appeal to Christianity to try to get the right to understand what the left is saying. Okay, what's the strategy then to overcome this left and right split in the book? And it permeates the whole book. The basic strategy the basic strategy of the book is to show each side the truth of the other side and do so in such a way that each side can understand why we must embrace both, embrace both ecology in the usual sense and moral ecology as two complementary parts of one whole Catholic ecology. That must be very carefully and, I might say, craftily done. Uh, otherwise, you spook one or the other side. Especially the, the the trick in this is that that since I teach at Franciscan, it's kind of hard for them not to know what side of the f- fence I'm on. Okay, uh, uh, not left or right, but Orthodox in the true sense, holding a full Catholic ecology. But okay, yeah, you've, you've you have certain moral positions. We already don't want to listen to you, so I have to try extra hard to get the other side to listen, to get the left to listen. Now you have to you have to be careful not to spook people where the conversation will shut down. They just won't read it. That'll be it. You, and I'll get, you know, I'll get an interview in NPR and all I'll do is scream at me and then the time's up and there's a commercial about, again, Subarus. <laughs> um, so the order of the chapters of the book is purposely designed to draw each side in using what they accept and will cheerfully cheer so each can be moved towards understanding the truth of the other side. That is, it's sort of Socratic in that way. You can't, you can't just leap up and, and, uh, and say <laughs> where you're going. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is provide a quick overview of the chapters. That will uh, take us up to the point where we can allow as many questions as you have. You'll, you, you now know the strategy of the book, and now since the book is written, except for the uh, introduction to the conclusion, which is always what you should write last, students in your papers, please keep that in mind. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, but it is, is substantially, it really is finished, not substantially finished, it is finished. So I can go over the chapters, but I'm going to do it quickly, and you'll get an idea of, this, of the sweep of the argument. Okay, so a quick list. Uh, the first chapter is just the introductory chapter, where, uh, the or not, sort of introductory chapter about the left and the right. It's just setting out that kind of a problem. The second is a chapter on the philosopher Francis Bacon, who argued that you should, we as human beings must have the goal of mastering nature and human nature through to- technology for this worldly pleasure, utility, and power. And he was an atheist, even though he pretended not to be. He was a good student of Machiavelli. Uh, So I introduced both sides to, here's this guy who seems like both of you should dislike him. Okay? Both of you have reason to reject him, yet he is associated with, is one of the great founders of modern atheism, but also the founder of, let's just pave the whole dang thing over uh, and and make a paradise of of concrete and plastic. That's an overgeneralization. But I can't go into the complexity of the, the bacon thing uh, three, the third chapter is, uh, begins with trash. Okay. I need to begin with something that the left is worried about that the right should be worried about stinking trash. Okay. And of course, whenever you're talking about trash, you need to talk about one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, and that ever will be made about trash and that's Wally. And you could do a whole course on it. I just want to note. Okay. Long story. Um, Wally is an amazing movie, and so I begin with that. But it's an obvious, unsightly form of pollution that uh, produces obvious harm to the natural environment. And I know this quite personally because I have had to visit landfills to throw things away. And you need to do that if you haven't gone to a landfill. Uh, It looks like Mordor and smells worse. Uh, And we also lived near one and could smell it. So I'm not real happy about those things. and I'm not happy about people who don't, who don't think that there's a problem there. You have, to, you have to experience them, so I put that in there. OK. Now, if that's creation and not just a hole in the ground, you're doing something really kind of nasty with it. Uh, now, this pleases the left or liberals, and so I hopefully they're on board, but it also gets the right thinking about morality. That is, they argue that there are moral sins, but I tie these to uh, the sins of, uh, or I'll say the vice in this instance, the vice of intemperance. That is the immoderate use of earthly goods. It's one of the seven, uh, seven deadly sins is also avarice and greed, and we wouldn't have that much trash if there wasn't there. And I don't make these uh, assertions in sort of a glib way that I have to now. I've got lots of information about it and lots of research. So what we see here is that, yes, the left does not like trash. They think it's a bad idea. It's very harmful. And if you've ever lived anywhere near it, it's awful. It's usually taken by people who are in a situation that don't have to smell it and shipped to places that are in economic decline and don't matter what you do to them, like Ohio, where we live. That's why we are the site of some of the biggest trash dumps from where else but New York City, where the left lives. Okay, So I get to dig into New York here, uh, which is always fun. Um, but the point of that is, it's not a good thing. Both sides should see this isn't a good thing, and there are moral aspects about it. And Christians in particular should be squeamish about doing that to creation. When you start thinking about environment, you think, that's those not so whack environmentalists. So when you start thinking creation, you start thinking about your own eternal destiny <laughs> and, and what God did as it brought about as a gift. So we're trying to soften the sides up. The second, or I'm sorry, it's actually the fourth chapter, the next chapter deals with something that won't spook the left, but it moves it closer to understanding, again, why we have morality, why the natural law really, in the account of the virtues which the Catholic Church provides, help us to understand what we're doing wrong to the environment and why it harms the human soul. Some of those things are explicit, some of them are implicit. So I moved to a chapter on hyperpalatable food and obesity. Uh, which is a form of moral pollution that I think I can get the left to say, yeah, I think that is not good. If you don't know about it, and I can manifest that by standing up and you can see my shape, there's an epidemic of obesity quite literally over the last 30-some years. uh, It's just skyrocketed. And there is actually a cause for that. Uh, And there's also a lot of effects. One of the effects is to create a whole lot of trash. Okay? And, you know, it's a bad effect of the environment, but it also causes a whole lot of physical problems. But it's also related to one of the seven deadly sins. That is, the Catholic Church has argued that gluttony is a kind of a sin because you have an undue uh, embrace of, of a particular pleasure that has its due proportion, but you're disproportionately embracing it. Okay. It also is connected to one of the deadly sins of avarice or greed, and this is where I get into an account of hyperpalatability. Again, if you don't know what it is, it's the engineering of food so that it gives pleasure beyond what natural food gives so that you human beings can become addicted to it. That is, it's engineered purposely to be addictive. That's why we have an epidemic of obesity. In other words, people understand that chart and how it works in relationship to your body, and they they engineer things so you can't stop eating them, uh, and even do interesting other things that I have learned in this. They uh, they do what un- I'm sorry. they will do this before lunch in the wall we'll fast. I'm sure <laughs> they they uh, pre They do what's called pre chew the food. What that means is that when you go to one of these uh, fast food restaurants, which just by his name should be an alert. Um, they make the food so soft that you don't have to chew it because the body is made to have chewing be part of the satisfaction system in the brain that tells you you're getting full. And so what they're trying to do is make it pre-chewed. That is, it's so tender that you swallow it quickly so your, your brain doesn't have time to tell you you're full and that, until you've eaten too much. But that too much is what makes their profits rise. So they're doing it on purpose, so the left is going to say, yeah, that's not a good thing to do. So you not only have greed involved, uh, but you have the misuse of science uh, and the deformation of human beings and all the things that come from this. And, of course, if you've seen uh, the movie WALL-E, then you know how I link that in. Um, please see the movie WALL-E, so I'm, I'm not going to explain it now. This, again, has moved uh, the left closer to understanding that there is something like sin. It's kind of hard if you're on the left and don't believe God exists, and then historically you reject sin, but we're starting to see, well, maybe there is something called sin, and what we mean by that is all the things we said were bad. <laughs> you want to say the thing people are greedy, but that's actually a vice. Okay? And the Catholic Church has known about that. In fact, you didn't have to go to the Catholic Church to go back to Aristotle go back to Plato. This is an old moral understanding that modernity has tried to actually remove. And so in this section, I talk about food addiction uh, also, which is a very real thing, and the brain science that goes with it, which actually makes it uh, addictive exactly like uh, heroin and opium and so on are. In fact, one of the beginning things I was just telling my students this morning, one of the beginning ways that scientists discovered the effect of hyperpalatability is they were feeding rats, you know, we'll do our control, right? We're we'll doing our control thing with our rats and we'll give them rewards, but they were only giving them pellets. They're regular food pellets. And they just don't get all that excited about regular food pellets. So when they were full, they stopped eating. Some one day somebody accidentally dropped a fruit loop near the rat, where the rat was going and they found out what hyperpalatability means and addiction now the rat ate far beyond it being full it wouldn't stop eating it fruit looped itself into obesity whereas it wouldn't with a normal food okay so then you're saying now we see what's going on well the food industry knew what was going on all along okay so what you have then is here's here's a complicity to actually destroy the health of people so you can get rich they know what they're doing okay So you're bringing in, you know, moral aspects to get a deeper understanding of actually what it means to talk about a moral ecology. And on top of that, all this food industry stuff creates a bunch of trash. Okay, so it gets us back to the first one say, yeah, that's not good. So notice I'm playing to the left a lot in this. And that's because chapter five is on sexual pollution, which is when they either close the book or they close the book. (laughs) Maybe they might keep it open. Okay, because this is, this is where it's going to become threatening. Now, it pleases the right to go into this because it's dealing with the person of moral sin. It doesn't appear to be talking with the environment, but it does not please the left because the sexual revolution was founded on the assumption that there was no limit on human sexual pleasure and there shouldn't be, and it's not harmful. Okay, but as I show in this... That would be like saying there's no limit on the pleasure of eating, and so hyperpalatability is not wrong, and the people who make money by it is not wrong. What is, it causes all kinds of uh, harmful health effects associated with obesity and food addiction, but the same thing happens exactly the same thing, same parts of the brain, everything, with porn addiction. So what we now show is that the sexual revolution is wrong, and this is in great and gory detail. That is, the destructive effects of pornography are immense, and there's a lot of literature out there on it. And so you can show, you don't, not just making a moral argument from the catechism, you're showing, look, folks, this is what it does, and it parallels other destructive uh, behaviors and addictions, uh, and we can show that. And, by the way, it also leads to sexual trafficking. It is not harmful. Uh, all kinds of abuse, and it's also fueled by uh, all kinds of greed. So you show it's connected to a lot of harmful physical effects uh, and uh, uh, psychological effects, everything from depression to thoughts of suicide uh, to all the other things that go with addiction, but also to things like sexual trafficking, rape, all the way around the line. So the left has to look, and I say to the left, doesn't this look like the forms of pollution that you were so obsessed about? Isn't it the same thing? Human beings have a nature. That's why you can pollute it. So pornography is a kind of pollution of our sexual nature. And it can be shown to have super destructive effects. How can you argue against it, then? And if you apply the same moral accounts uh, to trash and to hyper-palatability in food, then, of course, why can't you apply them to this? So, notice what I've done. I've taken them step by step. You agree with me here? Yes. You agree with me here? Yes. You have to agree with me here? Checkmate. Okay, now that, I don't know what, you know, I know what's going to happen at that point in NCR, uh, at NPR, not the NCR, the NPR. Um, but that's, that's just the way it goes. Uh, uh, but some will listen, okay, and, and uh, the setup, so they will. They're going to be really stinking mad at me, which is why I do chapter six on global warming, because I can finally say, well, now we're finally talking about the, the environment. Um, the global warming chapter, you know why I have to do it, because it was given attention in Pope Francis Laudato Si. And he did seem to be affirming, yes, this is actually happening, and so we know that it's a bad thing now. And it caused a whole lot of brouhaha. OK. Um, I am treating global warming in what I think is um, a very sneaky but correct way, which will make both sides um, have to think about it. Okay, so this is, this is a, a strategy. This is the longest chapter and most technically in-depth in the book, uh, because I know it's the most controversial. Uh, as you already know, uh, you know the left is going to be you know, global warming, global warming. That's what we have to be worried about. But the right is going to be skeptical. So what I try to do is provide a new way of understanding the debate about global warming, which satisfies both sides, but also stretches each side towards the other in, in a rather ingenious or perhaps might say a rather strange way. I think it's ingenious. So the ingenious truth of the matter is, as I argue in great te- detail, I'll read this twice. The possibility of global warming is one of the best proofs of God's existence ever discovered, whether or not it's actually happening. I'm trying to get you to digest that before noon. The possibility, notice I said the possibility, of global warming is one of the best proofs of God's existence ever discovered, whether or not it's actually happening. Why? Why? Okay, here we go. And I'll have to be somewhat quick about this. The argument for global warming is based upon the general recognition, which has become more and more deeply understood through the last half century of scientific discoveries, that the origin and development of the universe is finely tuned, precisely orchestrated from its very beginning and throughout its development over billions of years, right down to the extraordinary Earth's extraordinary, delicately balanced biosphere that allows for the existence and flourishing of complex life, especially human life. The global warming argument, even though they don't know it, the global warming argument is focused on a slice of that delicately balanced biosphere, our atmosphere, for the most part the precise and proper amount of carbon dioxide. So what I do is I place the global warming argument in a larger argument about the finely tuned nature of the universe. And that has a technical name. It's called the anthropic, that is anthropos, like human beings, the anthropic fine tuning argument. Okay. now if you're not aware of it, you will be after you buy several copies of my book. And you can buy it by the case, by the way. There's no reason not to do that. is that the anthropic cosmological argument is actually one of the most powerful arguments ever for the existence of God. And it all is focused on the delicate balance of everything. And if you put the CO2 in the the atmosphere as part of that delicate balance, you make the exploration of the delicate balance part of the anthropic fine-tuning argument and strengthen the argument for the existence of God, whether it's true or not because you're looking at the delicate conditions and trying to figure out whether it's true. But you're, you're, you're actually bringing out more and more in your research of those delicate conditions. So this co- very complex, that's why it's a long argument, about look how wonderfully fine-tuned the uh, the every aspect of the uh, uh, of the universe is from its very beginning down to uh, the, CO, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's, it looks like it was wonderfully designed by... A super intelligent being otherwise it couldn't have occurred it couldn't have occurred by accident and so uh, we I look at the amount of co2 in the atmosphere but I look at it in terms of going all the way back to the conditions which allow co2 in the atmosphere to the original conditions that allowed for the development of co2 at the beginning of the universe which is one of those things that was part of you know these the kind of arguments for the existence of God. Okay, so I I play on the CO two fear. By the way, you're exhaling CO two now, so you're evidently poisoning things. Uh, but I I don't go from let one side have it say or the other alone. That is, it doesn't matter whether you're a skeptic of it or a hearty affirmer of it. All I'm showing you is the complexity of. Uh, the place that CO2 actually plays in the atmosphere, but all these other conditions as well. In doing that, I have to introduce reasons why you would be suspicious of the global warming argument. In other words, to be fair to both sides, you provide why you would think that there was global warming and then why you think that there wouldn't be global warming. Okay, so the the actual book does not come down on one side or the other. And, And that's important because both sides are going to, we hope to be, you know, well, I can uh, if I can show that it isn't true, but I can do it complexly, I'm adding to the, the arguments for the existence of God. If I can uh, show that it is true, I'm still working with the complexity of nature, and inadvertently, whether I like it or not, I'm providing more evidence for the existence of God. In either case, God wins. Okay, you're providing, you're strengthening the the a uh, natural uh, philosophy kind of argument uh, based in science. Uh, chapter seven uh, is the great pyramid of beings. <laughs> Which is a way of saying I know some people in my class. It's a sketch of Catholic ecology, so I offer a fairly extensive account of what Catholic ecology should look like, including both the natural environment and human nature. Now that I made the little argument, say what's bring it all together, and this is actually Catholic ecology with a big C, but I hide that fact well. That is a stealth Catholicism. Uh, so it's it's a natural law argument, but. I, I, I seed theological implications and moral implications throughout that um, from you know the essential doctrine of the goodness of creation uh, to all the elements of the natural law to human beings being the kind of creature that can not only is the knowing creature unlike other animals uh, but one that can know about the existence of God uh, so all those things are, are part of that so that brings it all together now that the sides are somewhat softened up but I don't overwhelm the other side uh, so that they're willing to, you know, you can't force feed the entire doctrine of the church. You're not trying to do that. You're just trying to open things up. Faith and Reason podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.